chapter 33, verse 18. And we'll finish at the beginning of chapter 35. After Jacob came back from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within the site of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamur, the son of Shechem, the plot of the ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohai Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for your bride, and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife." Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to him, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the the men will consent to live with us as one people, only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword, 
and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the cities, city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. This is God's word. Father, this is a horrible story, yet in your wisdom you've recorded it for us, and there are things we need to know. So please be our teacher. Would you give uh, me clarity with my words as I seek to explain it? Would your spirit be a work amongst us so we hear the teaching of your word rightly? And above all, recognize our unworthiness, perhaps as we've sung, recognize that um, we make mistakes, we will fall, but we can have great confidence in you and your grace to carry us all the way to glory if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. Teach us of our weakness, but your strength again this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So where is God in this story? Where was God is the cry of the woman who was raped. Where was God when that was happening? Where was my God to protect me when he did that to me? Where is God when things go wrong? We may, may never have said that personally. We never have suffered to that extent, but there'll be stuff we see on the TV or stuff happen to our friends and we say, well, where is God in that? How could he allow that? And to her or to them, they're his people. How can he allow that to happen? Where is God when things like this take place? And where is he here? In Genesis 34. And why on earth has he recorded this for us? Why is this here? You can read this story in the end of 33. Well, that's nice. There's a nice little um, altar built to God. God, the mighty of Israel. That's nice. Chapter 35, verse 1. God appears. That's nice. And yet in the middle of rape and brutal murder, he disappears. Well, that's great. Where is God in this story? Wouldn't last week have been a nice week to end? We've been, excuse me, since January really in this, this cycle of the life of Jacob, Genesis 25 to 35. 
And uh, we've said as much as anything, promises that will not let sinners go. That's a pretty good summary of what's going on here. But most of the story is really about, at the beginning, there's uh, um, chapter 25, there's rivalry, there's fighting between Jacob and Esau. And God says, you'll be fighting all your lives, but Jacob will come out on top. But then last week, if you were here, we saw in the evening, the two brothers are reconciled. And they hug and they cry. And you think, well, that's nice. And now the credits can roll because that's a happy ending. And then there's this. This is, of course, let's be honest, this is, this is not the sort of passage you turn up very often, is it? And if you're a Christian and feeling a little bit flat, you don't think, well, Genesis 34. That's the sort of, there's, that's the sort of passage I want to turn to to really lift my mood. Or if you're not yet a Christian, where shall I go to find out about Jesus Christ, Genesis 34? It's all there. And yet God has decided we need to see this. And I think the reason it's here and in this part of Genesis is as we get to the end of the Jacob cycle, it does stop us doing a very silly thing, which is saying that at the beginning of his life, Jacob was a cad and a scoundrel. But now he's much better, and so he quite rightly gets the blessing of God. He deserves it. He does not. It stops us saying the silly thing that, okay, he was a rat at one point, but now he's a good guy, and we can raise him up as a biblical hero. We cannot. He remains deeply unpleasant in many, many ways. And the fact that God uses him, and the fact that God blesses him, is from the beginning to the end of his life, purely an act of grace unmerited kindness of God to be kind to Jacob and give him blessing. He does not deserve it. So for you and for me, it would be no good us saying, yes, I remember I became a Christian and I acknowledged then that I was sinful. But, you know, I've made progress in the Christian faith and I'm not as bad as I was then and no, I'm quite reasonable now. Well, I hope you have made progress in the Christian faith. You certainly should do. That's normative. That's normal. But... He's still utterly deserving of anything from God unless he gives it to you by grace. From first to last, the Christian life is one of undeserved kindness to us from the living God. And that's why we become Christians, remain Christians, go to be with him in eternity. Not because of what we've done, but because he's kind and gracious and holds on to us even though we're utterly undeserving. It's a miserable story, um, but let's work our way through it. We'll work our way through it like this. There's a tragic compromise, a disgraceful act, two pagan responses, one solution, one solution to sin. Let's work our way through it. We can go through the text fairly quickly, hopefully, I think. First then, there's a tragic compromise. We touched on this last week. End of chapter 33. Jacob finally arrives back in the promised land. So chapter 33, verse 18, Jacob came from Paran Aram. That's in exile. He's been in exile for 20 years. That's Laban country, if you've been following uh, with us for the series. Finally now, he comes back into the promised land of Canaan, verse 18. Brilliant. He's back. Back where he's meant to be, back in the promised land. And he goes to Shechem. Now. Okay, we touched on this last week. He really shouldn't have done that. 20 years earlier, 
chapter 28, uh, verses 20, 20, 21, 22 in particular, God had met him. God had given Jacob this spectacular vision of a, a staircase descending from heaven saying, look, Jacob, you can be with me because I'm providing a way. Magnificent vision. And Jacob said to the Lord, wow, if you watch over me and bring me back to this promised land of Canaan, I will come to Bethel, back to Bethel, and I will worship you here in Bethel. That was 20 years earlier now. God has brought him back. And Jacob goes to Shechem. Not quite where he'd promised to. And quite gone to the right place. And you can tell <clears throat> it's the obviously the wrong thing because at the end of this chapter, when we get through the horror, uh, chapter 35, verse 1, God says to Jacob, um, <clears throat> Bethel, do you remember? Bethel was where it was you were meant to be. Chapter 35, verse 1, God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel like you said you would. In chapter 28, verses 21 and 22. Now, why does he do this? He's made this promise. Why stay in Shechem? We're told Jacob arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. Now, if you know your Genesis very well or remember, we've worked our way through this. There's a slightly sinister echo here because uh, a number of chapters earlier, we're told of Lot who pitched his tent near the city of Sodom. And you think, okay, and so... Here we've got this man, Jacob, pitching his tent near the city of Shechem. It's exactly the same phrase is used. Oh, maybe that's going to go badly like he did for Lot. And it does. Now, why does Jacob do this? Why does he not obey the Lord and fulfill his promises he said he would? Well, I guess that's quite easy to understand. He's an old, he's getting on now. He's in his late 60s. He's been in exile for 20 years. He's been traveling around. And you can see if you're Jacob, you think, oh, okay, I'm back here. And now... Shechem, big town, trading, I can make money here. I can do well here. I can be prosperous here. I'm just a bit fed up of wandering. So stuff going to Bethel, here is fine. Here is good enough. I know I was meant to go there, but here is obedient enough. I make money, it's fine. Peace and comfort, that's what I want at this stage of my life. I can see out my days, retire happily. It's not what the Lord commanded, but it's nearly what he commanded, and that'll do. And what is clear is that is, it's half-hearted obedience. It's superficial discipleship. It's not what was required. Now, while he's carrying on with his superficial obedience, he's quite happy to um, carry out uh, sort of worship at the same time. So uh, verse 20, he's quite happily sets up an altar, mighty is the God of Israel. And that's quite common, is that you can happily go through the motions of uh, worshipping the Lord while at the same time obedience drifts. You know you're living in a way that he doesn't want you to, but it doesn't matter. As long as you carry out a little bit of perfunctory religious performance, all will be well. And of course, as chapter 34 reveals, this was a tragic compromise. It all goes terribly for his family. This is not a superficial stop. We know that, um, uh, just you read through the chronology of what's gone earlier, Dina must be about seven years old by the time they arrive in Shechem. So what's she going to be when she's raped? Seventeen? Maybe a little less than that. Seven or ten years at least that Jacob rests in Shechem. He's not staying one night in a travel lodge. He sets up home there. 
when he'd made a vow and the Lord had said, yes, you need to be in Bethel. It's a tragic compromise. What we need to remember or recognize is very simply this. Obedience matters. Wholehearted obedience matters. And a failure to obey the Lord and follow him wholeheartedly can have disastrous consequences. Horrible consequences. Let me caveat a little bit on that. One, God is very kind and he doesn't always give us what we deserve. He is gracious. But don't build your theology on that. You know, my grandfather, who uh, died in his 80s, smoked 120 cigarettes a day. I've smoked 120 a day. Never done me any harm. Shouldn't ban the things. Do you know what? We're not going to build our health campaigns upon Fred. Because, you know, there's always exceptions. There's always outliers. And God is often very kind. And even in this life, we don't get the consequences for our sin. We slander someone behind their back and after just think, oh no, no, that's going to get back to them and nothing ever happens and we, we, we confess it and think, well, we're quite lucky to have got away with that, as it were. Yeah, and God is kind. We often don't get the consequences for our sins. That's, that's true. Of course, the other thing is all sins can be forgiven. But the third little thing, forgiveness of sins is not the same as there being no consequences in this life. The two are, you can be forgiven anything you do, but there are always consequences. So the Christian employee who embezzles cash from the Christian boss and is discovered, and you know, it all comes out, it's transparent in the figures, and the, the employee says, I've done it, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And the boss says, yeah, I forgive you, and you're fired. What, that's not right, that's not fair. If you for- No, no, that's entirely fair, I forgive you. I'm not holding it against you. Sit next to me in church. Come round for lunch. But I don't trust you as an employee and you're fired. And that is entirely reasonable. Because forgiveness of sins is not the same as removal of consequences. A man gets into his car one night, has had too much to drink. He's drink driving and he smashes into a wall and uh, loses the sight in his eyes. He Phrase about it afterwards, Lord, that was a very silly thing to do. Yeah, it was. You confessed your sin, you repented. Good for you. But you don't get your eyes back because sin has consequences. And sometimes we live with them. So the Lord is very kind, and often we don't get what we deserve. All sins can be forgiven, but sin has consequences in this life. And here that's transparently true. It's a tragic compromise. So don't be a Jacob. Don't think, well, I've done quite well. I can live off my past glories in the Christian life. It's just time to, you know, a bit of comfort now. Settle down. Don't take things too seriously. Obedience, that's all right when you're in your 20s to obey wholeheartedly. But when you're in your 40s, you've got other responsibilities. You can't obey the Lord in everything. You know, it's just, it's just, that matters. Wholehearted obedience. Don't compromise. It can be tragic. It's a tragic compromise. Second thing that leads into a disgraceful act, <clears throat> verses uh, chapter thirty-four, one to seven. Okay, because they're living near Shechem, what does uh, uh, excuse me, Dinar do? Chapter thirty-four, verse one. Dinar, the daughter Leah, born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Sounds innocuous, but it's very odd for her to do that alone culturally. Pretty unwise for a woman to wander off on her own. And disaster happens. Verse two. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hevite, ruler of the area. 
Three verbs. He saw her. He took her. He raped her. Or violated her. Horrible. Strangely, we get a more positive verse 3. His heart was three verbs drawn to her. He loved the girl. He spoke tenderly to her. Verse 4, he is rude, says to his father, get me this girl. That's that's not how you speak to your father. But it's kind of something, at least he wants to make it an honest woman of her after his disgraceful act. He's pretty mixed up in his thinking. But what does Jacob do? Verse 5, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dina had been defiled, he did nothing. Let me suggest... That's a very strange response. If your one and only daughter is raped, to do nothing as a father. Oh well, dear. I've had a bad day as well. That's a very strange response from a father. Uh, Hamor comes in. Uh, uh, the um, uh, Verse 6, the, the father of uh, Shechem, the rapist. He comes in. And then you get the brothers, verse 7. They're furious. Absolutely furious. Now let me point out, an important thing in the story, I think, the narrator wants us to sympathize with the brothers. Verses 1 to 7 of chapter 34, they're all narrative comments. No dialogue. And so how does the narrator describe this act that's taken place? Verse 2, it is a rape. Verse 5, it is defilement. Verse 7, It is a disgraceful thing, a thing that should not be done. So the narrator is very clear, this is awful. Let me just pause briefly to say, if you've experienced anything like this, a rape, child abuse, sexual abuse, then of course you recognize those terms of defilement, of disgrace, of being violated. You feel an enormous amount of shame. You wonder if people know as you wander down the street, have I got the word defiled written on my forehead? It's an abhorrent thing. And before we move on, you do need to know that what this text is saying is that it is abhorrent. And the Lord hates it absolutely hates it. Yes, it's taken place within his world, but he hates it. And the narrator wants us to sympathize with the brother's fury. The narrator has got no patience with Jacob's inaction. Verse 7, this is a thing that should not have been done. It is a disgraceful act that's taken place. And then you get these two pagan responses, which is the, the bulk of the section. It's really three dialogues, uh, verses 8 um, to 23. Then you get the action. And then verses, verses 30 and 31 summarize really what's been going on. Let's work through it uh, briefly. There are three dialogues. First you get the appeaser, the appeaser, which is Jacob, who's the, the coward. So you get these two dads having a conversation, first of all. So verse 8, uh, uh, Hamor says, look, can, can, um, can you give up your daughter to my son to be his wife? Verse 9, he makes an offer. Intermarry with us, Jacob. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourselves. 
You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. You see, that's not just an offer of marriage. That's an offer of taking two different communities and blending them to become one. Don't do that, Jacob. The whole story of Genesis from chapter 12 onwards is that God has chosen one family, the family of Abraham, to be distinctive and different, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. You must be distinctive, Abraham and your descendants. Don't blur with these people. But that's the offer. Jacob, 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 we're men of the world, you know, we're the, we're the patriarchs of our clan. Let's just calm everything down. Yes, the boy's been a little bit impetuous, but he wants to make a decent woman of Dina, and we can, we can come to some, uh, we can come to some compensation about it, can't we, Jacob? Can't we, verse 10? The land's open, trade, acquire property. Shh, just calm it all down, Jacob. Let's just blur ourselves together. Shechem has a go as well, verse 11. Shechem says to Dinar's father, that's interesting. Not Jacob. Same person, of course. But you see at this point, the narrator is saying, Shechem says to the father of the girl he raped, you know, he's making that point. doesn't say to Jacob. Shechem says to Dinar's father, who should be protecting Dinar because she's been abused. He doesn't. So Shechem has a go. We'll just pay you money. Verse 12, you sell the price. Whatever price you say, just give me the girl. We can calm it all down, can't we? No comment. And what does Jacob say in response to all these offers? What does Dinar's father say in response to all of these? He says nothing. In the face of abhorrent action against his daughter, he says nothing. He does nothing. Hopeless. He's the appeaser. In contrast to that, you get the sons. They're the avengers. The avengers with their deceitful violence. So verse 13, another dialogue now. It's the sons. Now, verse 13, it's clear this is all going to be a ploy. Because their sister Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father, Hamor. So again, the, the, the author is saying, look, I'm with them in their fury. It's abhorrent, it's defilement, it's rape, it's a disgraceful act, but they are being deceitful here. I love their fury, their methods, their tactics, yeah, not so good. Okay, that's what we're meant to pick up from the narrator. So what's the, uh, what is the tactic? Well, it's very clear. Verse 15. Okay, yeah, we can, we can, we can work with this, uh, one clan together. Verse 15, you just need to be circumcised, all your men. That'll do it. They go, oh, okay, well, that's not too bad. So the third dialogue is verses 18 to 24. Shechem and Hamor go back to the Shechemites, and they miss out the part about the rape and just say, okay, this is good for, we can make some cash out of this. Verse 23. Um, we'll get livestock, property, other animals. So everyone's really after the money. The money's, all the men are talking about the money. Poor old Dino's been raped and the men are talking about money apart from the sons who are genuinely angry. So what happens? Verse 25. Well, the whole of the city of Shechem is circumcised and three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, 
Dinar's brothers. We know they're Dinar's brothers. We've been reading this book for quite some time, but it's being emphasized. Dinar's brothers, because they're protecting Dinar, unlike Dinar's father, who's doing nothing. Dinar's brothers, they took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. Wow. Now, that is entirely believable, I think. Uh, It's a few years ago now. A friend of mine, for medical reasons, uh, when he was about 30, had to be circumcised. I remember a few days later, uh, we went with him and his wife to the cinema. I remember seeing it was The Last Samurai, Tom Cruise, Japanese samurai. Um, (laughs) And uh, it wasn't that so much, but, um, you know, the, the... it was a few days later, but still, I didn't really understand such things, but it was still a, you know, he was walking down this, you know, he did walk slightly like this. Going to the loo was a sort of 45-minute operation. Anyway, we watched the film, we enjoyed the film. I thought it was all right, you know, as action films go. At the end, he was streaming in tears. I said, golly, that's moved you quite a lot. He said, I just need some more codeine. I just need some more codeine. Because he was in quite a lot of pain. So I get the fact that after three days, someone comes at you with a sword and you've just been circumcised as a man. You don't fight back very well. I get that. So there's a brutal massacre. Verse 26. Here's an interesting bit of information we've missed so far. Hamar and Shechem were put to, put to the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Ah. So she'd been held captive all the time. So these negotiations, it all seemed quite polite, hadn't they, in one sense, verses 8 to 23. The backdrop has been, yeah, should we make a deal? Because we've got your daughter locked up. It's a slightly different spin upon Jacob's cowardice and indeed the brother's aggression. A different spin, not change it completely. The summary you get in verses 30 and 31. Jacob then, what does Jacob make of everything that takes place? Well, he's a self-centered, callous man. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, look at the pronouns. You've brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people in this land. It's literally my people, a few in number. If they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. It's not all about you, Jacob. You do realize that. What a self-centered man. You do, oh, what have you done? It's going to hurt me. I'm not going to make so much money. I'm going to... The brothers, verse 31, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Is that what you preferred? Dad, just work through the logic. Because they've treated her like a prostitute and you've taken money to calm down and not do anything. That makes you a pimp. You've pimped out your daughter. We were unhappy with that. You content with that, were you, Dad? We were not. That's what they're saying. Jacob here, once again, is scared. Fear of man has driven out his faith in God. The brothers, are their indignation is good. Their tactics, you've got to say, are somewhat dubious. Two pagan responses to evil. Appeasement and the Avengers. Neither of them really do it. So you get to the end of this text and there are a whole stack of questions, it seems to me. Well, how can God use this family to achieve his purposes, for goodness sake? They're horrible. Two, how can you take this sin seriously, Lord, and yet still forgive people? Three, how can Dina move on from this? From her shame, 
from her defilement? And the answer of Genesis is, silent but there is one solution to sin so let's spend five minutes thinking about the answer that Genesis doesn't give but the New Testament does there is one solution to sin and it is the cross of course because it is upon the cross that Jesus died so that there would be justice so that sin could be horrifically punished but also there could be forgiveness and the cross is the only place where that's possible Severe justice, full forgiveness. If you're Dinah, you need to know that. If you're Dinah, you need to know that God takes sin seriously. You do need to know that. That this sort of sin is abhorrent and he hates it. He hates it. Of course, many in our culture, you, know, uh, you, can, live, you can live in the UK and be insulated from lots of sin. Or extreme things can happen. You can see prostitution rings in Bradford and associated places and say, well, it's just, just a few extreme individuals. We don't quite know what to do to rehabilitate them. And slightly, oops, glad most people aren't like that. But when you see things like this, or perhaps more appropriately, when you've experienced something like this, you do want to know that God judges severely and justly. And some in this church have been raped or are married to those who have been raped. And you want to know that sin is taken seriously. P.D. James, in one of her uh, detective novels called Original Sin, she has a female character, says to the Jewish uh, colleague, oh, if I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent, amusing and cheerful. Uh, The Jewish chap replies, I doubt if you'd find him much of a comfort when they herded you into the gas chambers. You might prefer a God of vengeance at that point. That's a pretty stark example, of course. But what's he saying? He's saying, do you know what, a big cuddly guy doesn't always cut it. When there's wickedness, you want someone a bit more than the big cuddly guy who's avuncular and laughs. You want someone who judges sin. You really do want that. When something abhorrently wicked is perpetrated, the right response is outrage, like the brothers. And we want God to judge. And yet, on the other hand, we know that because upon the cross... The full vengeance, it's not quite the right word, is it? But just justice of God falls upon Jesus Christ. There is the capacity to be forgiven, and there is extraordinary capacity to forgive. Even if you're a diener, I'll take a long time, a long time, no doubt professional help, but there is capacity to forgive. I don't know if you saw in the paper just a couple of weeks ago, um, Patricia Mackin was the woman whose uh, uh, <coughs> pensioner husband uh, went out to get the paper and was knocked down in a hit and run uh, by a chap. And uh, Patricia Mackin, very publicly, and in the courtroom when the, when the guy came to trial, uh, wrote a letter in his defense saying, yes, he made a mistake, but I forgive him. And the defense lawyer and the judge thought this was just extraordinary. She's a Christian woman. I said, oh, I can forgive him. 
for doing that. I was struck by that. I was struck even more by uh, one comment someone passed me from a newspaper. Uh, it was in the Telegraph, Ruth Dudley Edwards. Uh, this was her comment uh, upon Patricia Mackin's kindness in forgiving. She put it this way, the columnist. Uh, I'm an atheist, but I prize the Christian heritage in this country that has done so much to make this a kindly country. The many decades in which, sorry, in the many decades in which, as a historian and journalist, I've striven to understand Northern Ireland, I've often been humbled by the way in which bereaved people set out to forgive those that had caused them terrible heartache. I know widows whose husbands were murdered, who have listened to the words of the gospel. They've seen walking down the street the man they believe shot their husband in cold blood. They've said a prayer and set their faces against vengeance. Very strange things. I'm, I'm an atheist, but I prize the heritage. Do you know what? It's not a heritage that gives you the resources to forgive. Not a heritage. A heritage does nothing. My grandfather, who smoked 120 day, owned a bus company. Do you know what a heritage as a bus company grandfather does for me? It does nothing. I know it. it doesn't change me. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't move me. It doesn't, you know, influence me. A heritage does nothing. But if you're a Christian and you know that Jesus has died for you, that you deserve justice. But he's taken it so you can be forgiven. There is a resource there, a stunning resource to enable you to forgive. If you know both the justice and the love of the cross. So this very strange story of Genesis 34. Where is God? Why doesn't God protect me in this scenario, screams the victim. Well, in a profound and deep way, of course, we need to return to the cross where Jesus Christ hangs there and says, where is God? Where is God to allow this to happen? Or literally, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he saying? He's saying, where is God? Not where is God that one man should be allowed to defile me, but where is God as the sins of countless billions throughout history defile me as they come upon me and cut me off from my Father? Where is God? And where is he? He's enacting justice upon the cross. He's demonstrating love upon the cross so that you and I can be forgiven, have the resources to forgive. So that even though there are times here and now where we say, why have you allowed this? Where are you in this mess? We know that one day we'll see him face to face because he'll hold on to us. You read this story and you need to know Shechem will one day face justice. Uh, Unless he's trusted in Jesus Christ fully to take his sin. Dina, if you're Dina, Dina needs to know that Jesus Christ was defiled so she can be clean. She can be clean again. Jacob needs to know as he looks at this story, I'm not a good guy, am I? I've changed a little bit. I'm not quite the cat I was 20-odd years ago, but I'm not that much better. And if I'm going to inherit the blessings of God, 
It is purely an act of his grace. His promises never let sinners go. We don't deserve them, but he's very gracious. Where is God? He's holding on to us, even though we don't deserve it. Let's pray together. Our Father, you know that there almost any other part of the Bible would prefer to turn to than a story such as this. But we thank you that you've given it to us because we need it. Father, for those who can't help but read themselves into the story of Dina, we pray very much for them, that they would know your love for them, your strength, and that one day there is a day of justice coming. Father, we pray more widely for us that we would, in reading this story, it would stop us making the silly mistake of ever thinking that we deserve goodness from you. That we perhaps a bit like Jacob have got better and don't need forgiveness in quite the same way as we did 10, 20 years ago because, wow, we're a little bit better than them. Would we once again be confronted by the wickedness that is within humankind and your goodness that you don't let go people you've promised to. Father, would we trust not in ourselves but in your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.